Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. For the last month, we've been in a series about the heart of God. And we started by wrestling with whether God is, is good or not, what it would mean if he is or isn't. And then we looked at what it means to have a heart like this good God's with the realization that we're pretty far off. Last week, we then looked at how God gives us a new heart by giving us his own spirit so we could actually be like him. And for our last time together in this series, I want us to return to the heart of God. So I think sometimes when we focus so much on the state of our own hearts and the needs we have, as necessary as it is, it's easy to become discouraged and to question whether that God actually, truly, really deep down desires us to be with him. To do this, I'm going to be pulling quite a bit from a man named Thomas Goodwin, who was a Puritan pastor from the 17th century in England, and this is him. Uh, Fun fact, he had an addiction to nightcaps, which are the hats you wear at night, Um, and uh, he was famous for it, but he was so addicted to them that in his, his official portrait, he wore one. So that's Goodwin. Now, the fact that uh, Goodwin was a Puritan might be a little off-putting for some of us, because to say that someone is like a Puritan or that they're puritanical is not exactly a compliment. Uh, The Puritans, their whole movement started because they believed that the Reformation of the 1500s wasn't enough. They wanted to further purify the church. However, they made quite a few mistakes, and there's at least two big mistakes they made. First, uh, they got on William Shakespeare's bad side because they tried to close down the theaters, and the man has a way with words and insults. So that was the first mistake. Second, when they had a season of political power, they tried to force people to live as Christians. So imagine you happen to miss a, a Sunday, and Pastor Josh shows up bright and early Monday morning, concerned for your soul, and tells you that, hey, if you happen to miss next weekend, uh, you will pay a fine. And uh, if you don't pay that fine, well, then you can contemplate the state of your soul from jail. Now, along with that, uh, the Puritans did other things, such as banning sports, because they were frivolous, and uh, they stopped celebrating Christmas, because Christmas was too Catholic and people partied too hard, so get rid of it. Um, now, if I had declared, for, if I had the power even, to declare that we're no longer going to celebrate Christmas, my wife Janelle would be the first one up with a pitchfork. Um, and the, it's tr- she loves Christmas. Um, and this did not go over well with the English people either. And so eventually the Puritans were ousted, the king was returned, uh, and then the Puritans were persecuted. And that's usually how we think of these people, that they're judgmental, tyrannical, they don't like fun, and they dress only in black and look like they just ate a sour strawberry. And that's unfortunate, actually, because so many of them were actually good-hearted, joyful people dedicated to knowing and loving God with their entire life. C.S. Lewis, the great British author and theologian, uh, actually mentions this unfortunate turn in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which I enjoy way too much, um, where the demon Screwtape tells his protege, 
May I remark in passing that the value we have given to that word Puritanism is actually one of the really solid triumphs of the last hundred years. And by it, we rescue annually thousands of humans from temperance, chastity, and sobriety of life. And so the point being is don't be put off by Goodwin simply because he's a Puritan. They actually have a lot of really good stuff to say as long as it's not about sports or Christmas. Now, coming from a family of Puritans, Thomas Goodwin grew up very religious. And he was also hyper-intelligent. And so it was natural for him to want to go into the ministry. And so when he was old enough, which was probably about his mid-teens, he went off to Cambridge to study to become a pastor. However, at Cambridge, and as is not unusual for young adults, uh, Thomas Goodwin decided that partying, or as the Puritans put it, making merry, was much more interesting than seeking a life with Jesus. And, and in fact, Thomas Goodwin liked to be the center of attention, and so he changed his goal from serving as a pastor to becoming a celebrity preacher, where he could show off how intelligent he was and then be applauded for it. That was his goal. However, at 20 years of age, which we'll say is the modern 30 now, Goodwin attended a funeral. And at this funeral, he was thrown into such a state of concern for his own soul. And it led him into seven dark and grim years of wrestling with himself as he tried to find any sort of hope or assurance in his own heart. After struggling further and further into despair, Goodwin was finally directed to not look within himself to his own heart, but actually to look outside and into the heart of Jesus. And that changed everything for him. Not long after this, he was mentored by another famous Puritan preacher named Richard Sibbs. Um, and this is a side note, but Sibbs had some wonderful nicknames. Uh, he was known as the honey-mouthed Dr. Sibbs, and he was also called the Sweet Dropper, which we don't do nicknames like that anymore. Um, but he had those names because his messages were so sweet to the soul of those who heard him that even unrepentant sinners refused to attend his church, knowing that they would be compelled to go back to Jesus. That was Sibbs. Anyway, Sibbs famously tells Thomas Goodwin, young man, if you would ever do good, you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what Goodwin gave himself to do. Because after finding only turmoil and doubt in his own heart, he finally discovered love and forgiveness and grace beyond his imagination in the heart of Jesus. And so this is what he wanted to preach and to dedicate his life to. However, he, he saw a problem. Because he felt that that people were so concerned with the state of their own hearts as he had been himself that they were no longer able to clearly see Jesus. Instead, trapped in themselves, people wouldn't even approach Jesus because they didn't know his heart, only the problems of their own. And so his solution and all that he did for the rest of his life was to simply set forth Christ in order to draw our gaze to him and off ourselves. And so as we end our series today, this is what I hope to do, to once again fix our eyes on Jesus, along with good ones so that we might find rest and hope and assurance and joy and peace and love. And our focus is going to be on some of Jesus' interactions with his disciples, particularly after he is raised from the dead in John chapter 20. But before we jump in, I'm going to pray for us one more time.
Uh, Father, thank you that we can gather together. Thank you that you have given us your word so that we might know what you have promised to us. Uh, Would you speak through me? Would you open our hearts so that we might recognize your voice? And would we know more fully your own heart? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we talk about following Jesus, there is a passage that churches often like to go to. And then odds are you've already heard of it. And it's called the Great Commission, where Jesus, after he is raised from the dead, gathers his disciples, assures them that all power and authority has been given to him, and then he commissions them and sends them out into the world to make disciples of all nations. And we love that passage, and we hone in on this mission that every follower of Jesus has to undertake to make disciples wherever they're at, and how Jesus graciously invites us to join him in what he is doing. However, we often skip over the lead-up to Jesus' invitation, and we miss something interesting going on with his disciples. So this is Matthew 28, verses 16 through 17, right before Jesus launches into this invitation. Says, that's the wrong book. Here we go. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's odd. His disciples see him, they worship him, but some doubt. And so the question I've been wrestling with is, what exactly are they doubting? And most of the time when I've read this passage, I've assumed that was something intellectual, Right? That they couldn't actually believe it was Jesus. He was dead, but now he's alive. But they're actually in the process of worshiping him. And, but that's normal for how we think of doubt. That's just this mental thing. And however, I actually wonder now if it's something else. And for my fellow nerds out there, the Greek word behind our English word here, distazo, is, is actually just about hesitation. It's not about this inner turmoil. And sure, it could be that the disciples were hesitant to trust that it was actually Jesus, which they seem to do elsewhere. And yet, I wonder, actually, if their hesitation isn't about Jesus, it's actually about themselves. That they were hesitant, they worried that they couldn't even approach Jesus. That they wavered because they knew they weren't worthy of him. After all, it hadn't exactly been the best week for his disciples. It was the time of the great Jewish festival called the Passover, where faithful Jews celebrated God's deliverance of their people from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus had begun telling them on the way to Jerusalem that he was going to be rejected, arrested, and killed, which his disciples really struggled with, especially Peter, and they refused to accept it. And this led to some pretty harsh rebukes. And then once they finally get to Jerusalem, things seem to turn out better for a hot second. Jesus is welcomed in by crowds, waving palm branches and praising God. But then Jesus gets to the temple, flips some tables, and annoys the priests and the Pharisees. And then on his way out of the temple, Jesus not so quietly says that this this whole building, this whole thing, the center of the Jewish faith is actually going to be destroyed. And that doesn't go over well either. 
Well, later, when Jesus has this Passover meal with his disciples, he announces that one of them who has been with them for three years is actually going to betray him. And they're shocked and they question whether this is actually even possible. And they miss this strange interaction Jesus has with Judas. But Peter, of course, announces that even if these other disciples, the lesser ones, should fall away from him, Peter is going to stay with him to the very, very end, no matter what it is. And the rest of the disciples following Peter, which has not classically been the best move, declare the same, that they will never, ever abandon Jesus. Well, after dinner, Jesus leads them to a garden outside Jerusalem called Gethsemane. And it's very late. The Passover meal goes well into the morning, and the disciples are tired. And yet Jesus presses on, and once there, he asks them to stay up with him and to pray, because although he, too, is exhausted, he's also incredibly distressed, and he needs encouragement for what is to come. And instead, his disciples just fall asleep, and they leave him to pray alone. And he comes back, wakes them, asks them again, and goes off, but once more, they fall asleep. They can't even stay up with him. And so the next time he comes, he just leaves them asleep and goes off by himself. And then a band of men come with weapons led by none other than their friend Judas. And in a panic, the disciples waken. And when people come to grab Jesus, Peter fishes out a sword and takes a swipe at one of the servants. And yet Jesus rebukes him. And this isn't his way. And when they see that Jesus isn't going to use violence to resist, all of his disciples... Every single one of them flee. And they abandon Jesus to this group of thugs led by his betrayer. A few of them do circle back and they secret themselves into his trial. Peter ends up denying that he even knows Jesus not once but three times. And John just watches Jesus be condemned to death. They watch him taken to the hated Romans where Jesus is denied justice and ordered crucified in place of a rebel and a murderer. And finally, they watch him tortured, then led through the city to a hill outside where he is nailed to a cross, raised between two thieves, and mocked by the crowd in his agony. And finally, at the end, they watch as he cries out to God and dies. All right, so much for the promises that his disciples made to him, of all the assurances that they had given him. So much even for just being a halfway decent disciple, because in that day, for a disciple to abandon their teacher was the the greatest shame a teacher could have. And so is it any wonder then that when Jesus calls them after his resurrection, that they hesitate when they see him? Because they abandoned him. They denied him. They stood from afar as he suffered and died alone. And so what must Jesus think of them? I think that we can resonate with his disciples. At least I know that I do. Because when I look at my own heart, I see how far away I am from the person I think God wants me to be. I know the failures I have and my failings and the struggles I keep having, the battles I keep fighting and the retreats I keep making. And so when I draw near to God in my heart, I find myself ashamed. Just as certainly as Jesus' disciples felt ashamed when they approached him on that hill in Galilee. 
And as certainly as they did, I too hesitate to go to him. Because knowing my own heart, how could Jesus ever want me? How could he ever welcome me or love me or forgive me? And so we can choose to hide that shame by simply denying that we've ever done wrong or by telling ourselves that the mistakes we did are just small things, no need to worry about them, and and then we don't have to go to Jesus and face them. Or we can assume that Jesus is going to be angry with us and reject us, and we know we deserve it after all. So it's probably better not to go to him until we've got it figured out, and so we're going to punish ourselves and refuse to forgive ourselves until we're as we should be, but we know that we're not going to get there, and so we just end up consumed by shame. And yet, is that how Jesus sees us? As failures? As traitors? People he's ashamed of? Is that how Jesus saw his disciples who were ashamed of him and denied him so that they could save their own skin? When we pick the story back up in John chapter 20, after Jesus has died, and his body placed in the tomb. John 20, verse 1. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb, Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. But they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now, if you were Peter and John, this other disciple, what would you make of this? Right? Mary Magdalene comes back in a panic, says the tomb's empty. And so you run there, fearing the worst, that Jesus' body has been stolen and is probably being dishonored. And then you look in and you see the burial linen just sitting there, and you begin to wonder. And then things Jesus had said on the way to Jerusalem begin to click into place, and you actually believe that Jesus isn't dead, but he's alive, though you don't really understand yet what that means. And so what do you do as Peter and John? Well, you probably run back to Jerusalem faster than you ran to that empty tomb. And you start telling everyone that Jesus isn't dead, that he actually lives. And you cry for joy and you hug your friends and you start singing worship songs and you throw the biggest party. Well, actually, no. If you're Peter and John, you just go back to where you're staying. Because you know what you did. And while you're glad that Jesus is alive... You can't imagine when you look into your own heart that he would actually be glad to see you. Mary, however, stays. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. 
As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Now there's a lot of fascinating stuff going on in this, but I just want to focus on how Jesus addresses his disciples. Right? These men who had denied him and abandoned him to torture and death. He says, go instead to my brothers. Jesus calls these men brothers after all they had done. Thomas Goodwin, reading this passage, reflects on another in Hebrews where it talks about those Jesus says he is not ashamed to call brothers and sisters. And yet, Goodwin says, surely his brothers have been ashamed of him. So now for him to call them brothers when first entering into his glory argues more the love he has towards them. That he would, that Jesus isn't ashamed to be connected with these men who were ashamed of him and ashamed of themselves. And that's remarkable. And yet just as remarkable is that Jesus tells us that God isn't ashamed to be called their father either. And hold on to that because we'll see that a little more fully. Continuing on. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, even after the testimony of Mary Magdalene, after Peter and John confirm that the tomb is empty and perhaps even acknowledge that they believe Jesus is risen from the dead, we still find them hidden away behind locked doors, afraid of the Jewish leaders, which is interesting. And yet locked doors are no longer a problem for Jesus, and so he just shows up, as you do. And notice what Jesus says to them. He says, peace be with you. It's not he stands there and says, hey, traitors, or what was wrong with you guys that you abandoned me? No, instead, he offers them peace. After all they had done to him, he offers peace. 
And he shows them his hands and feet so they might know it's truly him. And only then are they overjoyed. Because first they must be assured that he truly comes in peace and that it is actually him. And then Jesus does something else remarkable in John chapter 20, and that he turns these traitors back into apostles and he commissions them to follow in his work, going as far as giving them his authority as well as his spirit. However, not everyone is there. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, once again, Jesus shows up this time when Thomas is around. And again, notice how Jesus responds to Thomas. It's not Thomas what is wrong with you? Or Thomas, you should have known better. No, instead, with an offer of peace, Jesus invites Thomas to know that it is truly him. That although Thomas had abandoned Jesus, Jesus never abandoned Thomas. And one thing Jesus does command, stop doubting and believe. However, again, I think our English word Doubt misses this a bit because Jesus is not telling Thomas to not have questions, but to literally don't be unbelieving, but believing. Belief isn't so much an intellectual word as it is a relational word. It's about trust, not me checking off a list of things that I'm acknowledging to be true. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's inviting Thomas back into relationship with him. It's as though Jesus is saying, Thomas, I know what you have done. I know your doubts and your shame and that you worry that I could never love or forgive you. But do you see what I have done? Do you see the nail marks? Do you see where the spear pierced my side? All of your mistakes, all of your failures, all of your sin has been dealt with. So don't hesitate. Don't hold yourself back. Come and trust me. Goodwin, again, writes that in all of Jesus' interactions with his disciples, no sin of theirs troubled him, but their unbelief. Which shows how his heart stands and that he desires nothing more than for people to believe in him and this now when glorified. And so this was Jesus' concern. Not with his disciples' mistakes, not with their sin, not with their ignorance, not with their abandoning him, but simply with their unwillingness to trust in his heart, a heart that offers peace, 
a heart that calls them family, that shares love and extends forgiveness, that brings them to the Father and sends them his spirit. John ends the chapter this way, saying, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In essence, I think John is telling us that his whole gospel, this whole book, is like Jesus' invitation to Thomas. That it's our way of hearing Jesus' offer of peace to us. Our way of seeing the marks in his hands and on his side of hearing the call not to give in to our shame, but to trust him and know that there's forgiveness and love. And this brings us back again to Goodwin and his call to look outside of our hearts. Because in ourselves, there is no assurance or hope that we could ever approach God. Because knowing who we are and what we are and what we've done, we fear that God could never love us, could never want us, could never forgive us. And so... We hesitate to go to him. And yet how Jesus treated his disciples is surely how Jesus will respond to you. That is what I think John is trying to get across by these specific stories that he shares. That all Jesus wants is for you to come and to trust him. That the only thing coming between you and him is not your sin, because he paid for it and he willingly forgives. Instead, it's believing in your own heart rather than his. It's saying that Jesus must be or would be ashamed to have you. It's rejecting his heart and not taking his love seriously, saying that your mistakes, your imperfections are too great for him to ever overcome. And so I tell you now that if Jesus overcame death, as varied and as extravagant as your mistakes are, they certainly don't compare. Goodwin again says, it's as if Jesus tells us, the truth is, I cannot live without you. I shall never be quiet till I have you where I am, that so we may never part again. That is the reason of it. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my Father's company, if I have not you with me. My heart is so set upon you, and if I have any glory, you shall have part of it. As strange and as nonsensical as it is, Jesus is not ashamed to be called your brother. That is why he died. And the Father, or God, is not ashamed to be called your Father, because that is why he sent his Son. And nor is the Spirit ashamed to live in you, because he is there to remind you of the promise of God's love. So don't distrust Jesus because of your heart. Instead, trust in his Now, at East Hills, every month we take something called communion, where we go to Jesus, we confess our sin, and we remember his sacrifice through eating bread and drinking juice. And in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come up and receive the bread and the juice from Josh and Wendy, who will be up here. 
Um, and if you would, come up this aisle, exit across the front, go down that one and be seated. And today, I'd like us to take communion together. So when you have it, just please go back to your seat, hold on to it, and I'd like you to think of something while you're waiting. I want you to imagine that you are one of Jesus' disciples, hiding away in that locked room, and Jesus suddenly appears. I want you to picture him standing there. I want you to imagine that his eyes fall upon you. How would he look? What would he say to you, if he would say anything at all? And would you hesitate? So again, imagine you're there, Jesus sees you. What does he look like? What might he say? And would you go to him? I'm gonna invite Josh and Wendy to come up here. And then I invite all of you to come and to take the bread and the cup as well. And in a few minutes, I will lead us in communion. When I was in college, there was about a year where I refused to take communion. And it was a little weird because I was also at a Christian college and I had plenty of opportunity to do it. And yet, I wrestled with how messed up I felt. And God also felt so very, very far away. And I couldn't believe that God would ever accept me as I was. That he would never want me to come to him. And some of you may be feeling that same way today. Uh, this lie that God would never forgive or love us. And it's still a lie that I struggle to put down. And so today, I want us to see the eating of this bread and drinking of this cup as a declaration of trust. That where we don't look at our own hearts, that condemn us, but look instead to Jesus' heart and his offer of peace and that he calls us brothers and sisters and calls God our Father as well. That communion is this act of resistance against this lie that God could never forgive us, that God does not want us, that God does not love us. And so at the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus knowing what was to come, even in the lives of those 12 men, took a loaf of bread, gave thanks, and had it around saying, take and eat, this is my body. Likewise, Jesus took a cup, gave thanks, and handed it around saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Father, it's hard to understand a heart as gracious and compassionate as yours. It's hard to understand that you could love us, that you could forgive us, that you would desire so much for us to know you and be with you that you would send your son to die for us. That we who have rejected you, we who still in many ways rebel against you, that all you want is for us to come and to trust you and to know your love. Help us to see that more and more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.